Yeah, before I get into the study, I'm just going to share something from Judges chapter 19. Um, so you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the story, but it's probably one of the worst chapters I've ever read in the entire Bible. Um, yeah, it's gnarly. Yeah. So you're going to share it? Yeah. Uh, well, no, it's setting up for what we're talking about. Um, the, uh, it starts out with this guy. Oh, <clears throat> wait, before I do this, sorry, I'm scatterbrained tonight. So if you want to ask questions during the message, if, and I think this might be a message where a lot of questions might come up, um, if you go on your phones to sli.do, um, so slido, sli.do, or slido.com, either one, it'll give you a little hashtag. If you type in the word goals, just hashtag goals, um, it'll bring you to our event, and you can ask questions and vote during the message. So at the end of the message, me and the counselors will tackle some of your guys' questions. So... Anyway, you know what? I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. God, we love you. I pray, God, that you would speak through this time. I pray that you would bless this time. God, you're so amazing, and you created us as men and women, equal in so many ways, different in so many ways, Lord, but equally disciples, equally loved, equally chosen to follow you. I pray that we'd see that here tonight, Lord. I pray that we'd look past so much of the perversion of culture that paints men and women, as so different that they use one another. I pray that we would look past that, God, and instead see the purpose that you have for us and how we can love each other as you love us. We love you, Lord, and we give this night to you in your name. Amen. Okay, so Judges chapter 19, uh, one of the gnarliest chapters ever. Um, It starts out with a priest, a guy who uh, is a Levite, so he's from the line of priests in Israel, and he has a concubine. And what that is is basically a wife Um, that is different than your normal wife. So you have your wife, and then your concubine is just basically like the girl who's on staff, like, slave to have sex with you back then. That's what it was, a concubine. So not a good thing. So this guy has a concubine. The concubine runs away, and he goes after her and basically chases her her down to her dad's house and is like, come back, I want you back. And they're traveling home, and they get to this town, and it's one of the worst things I've ever read. Um, basically, they, this group of angry men come to the town, like this mob of angry men, like, you know, pitchforks and torches, and, and they hide out in this house, and um, the old man comes out, and he's like, you know, don't do this, like, please don't do this. And um, the men at the door are like, come on out, like, bring out the, the men who came here so that we can rape them. And then the man, the old man, is like, oh, like, don't rape my guest. Like, this guy's amazing. You know what? You can have my daughter and his concubine. And so they take the daughter and the concubine, and they push them out the door, and they get raped to death. And that's basically how the story ends. And it's one of the worst things ever. And it's easy to read that and be like, man, so I guess God's okay with that because it's in the Bible? Or is this, like, a lesson to, like, girls, like, don't go to strange towns? Or, like, what? Like, what is the moral... What, what's the moral of this? And, and for me, like, I wrestle when I read that things, And I'm like, like, why is this in the Bible? Like, why did God put this in here? And a reminder that I have is when we were studying the book of Judges, the book of Judges wasn't a book to show us how to live. It was a book to show us the worst of humanity. Like, it's, we called that series a kingless kingdom, if you remember, because it's basically what happens when we have a world without Jesus as king. And... I thought it was very important when you looked at that story to notice that the woman in the story was constantly objectified. She was objectified by her husband. She was objectified by her father in the story. And in the end of the story, she is literally nothing more than an object and gets pushed out the door to be used. And that is how our culture is teaching us to treat one another, especially, I would say, women in our culture. Um, And so I wanted to use tonight to kind of put together a a talk about this and go through some biblical views on objectification because it's huge in culture. And disclaimer is, girls, I know most of you probably feel you know a lot about this topic through personal experience. I can't ever walk in your shoes. I'm not a high school girl. I'm I'm a guy. I'm an older guy. And, And so I haven't been where you've been. But as a husband... And as a son and a brother and a pastor to both over the years, junior high and high school girls, this is a topic that I believe matters. And so just understand I'm a guy up here trying to do my best. So if I misrepresent you as a, as a girl, I apologize. That being said, the, the title is Fighting Objectification Together. So I believe objectification is something every human being struggles with. I also believe it is of the enemy and not of God. And so the way going forward is for Christ-following men and women to fight against it together. That's my goal. How can we learn to fight it together? Are you you with me? 
Yeah? Cool. Nods. Awesome. Um, let's get into it. So first, what is objectification? The first, oh, definition is right there. The action of degrading someone to the status of a mere object. You're turning them into an object. The first place we see this happen in the Bible is in Genesis right after Cain kills Abel. There's a guy named Lamech. And Lamech basically becomes a wife collector. He travels around the land collecting wives as property. He's a violent man who kills his enemies and collects wives as property. Objectification has been around a very long time. Now, there's science behind objectification. Um, scientists have discovered that part of the brain that lights up when men look at tools is the same way that lights up when men look at women in a lustful way. The same area of the brain lights up. It's something that goes, oh, I can use this. This person is a utility, not a person. Someone I can use to my benefit. And if any men in here deny this, I think one of the biggest evidences we see of this being true is because the huge factor of the widespread use and easy access of pornography. It's literally rewiring our brains to view one another as objects. Um, the average age that someone is exposed to pornography and addicted to it is 11 years old. That was back in 2016. It might even be younger now. And with the rise of young children being given smartphones, like, I don't know if you've seen, like, really young kids walking around with smartphones, but, like, yeah, it's crazy sometimes. Like, pe parents will literally just give their kids tablets and smartphones at a very young age just to keep them busy and babysit them. And we're seeing at a younger and younger age kids getting addicted to this stuff. Um, smartphones and access to social media apps, um, the average age will become younger and younger with each passing year. And the reality is this is a problem, not just in culture, but it's also a problem in the church. I remember even in Bible college, there were guys in my dorms, um, and I remember they were basically talking about the girls in the Bible college and rating them. They had numbers of, and rating the girls based on their appearance. And it was super nonchalant. It was just like it was second nature, just a bunch of guys sitting around in a dorm kitchen in England talking about the, like, we had a really small semester. It was like probably 40 people, so there's like 20 guys, 20 girls, so we're just the guy is just sitting around and, and raiding girls based on their appearance. Um, I think it's definitely an issue. Another fascinating study shows the implications of something called, this is very interesting, global and local processing. So when we look at things, we tend to see things through either a global lens or like a <coughs> local lens. So here's, here's the difference. Like let's say you take a house. Global processing is when you see and judge something as a whole. So you look at the house and your brain just goes, oh yeah, it's a house. Like you just see it as it is, like just a complete thing. But then there is something called local processing, which is where you see and judge something based on an individual part. Looking at a house and instead of noticing the whole house, you're picking out the windows and the doors and you're noticing individual things. Some of you guys might be with stuff like this, definitely local processors. You notice a house and you're, you're checking out all the individual things you like. Now, the studies have shown that both uh, men and women tend to see men through the lens of global processing, which means when you see a man, your first instinct is to view him as the sum of his parts. You see a dude and you're just like, oh yeah, there, it's a dude. You just see him as he is. But these studies also reveal women are usually seen through local processing by both men and women. So that means Women are seen and judged based on their parts, not their whole. And I've even heard women say this about other women. Like when they check out other girls, they're checking out their hair and their body and comparing themselves to them. The, 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 the nature of our culture has said that a man is a man and should be judged just as he is, but a woman is to be judged on her appearance and the sum, or, or not the sum of her parts, but all of her individual parts. And this is a huge problem because for women, it's a serious disadvantage to the women in culture. They've got all of these things going against them. They've got pornography. They've got objectification, which comes through pornography. When you watch it, it causes you to view the person as an object and not as a human being made in the image of God with a soul and a family and a life. Um, cultural expectations on girls to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, advertising culture, like you cannot get past any magazine or YouTube video or ad where it's not basically saying, girls, you have to look this way and be this way. Um, the clothing brands, I'm sure you girls 
are struggling with like in the summer, you try to like, you know, get an appropriate outfit for summer camp and you go in the clothing store and the outfits literally just keep getting smaller and smaller every year. Um, and, and the film industry. I mean, we all, I, I seriously, there's, there were so many times I remember dating where me and Brooklyn would go to a movie and some horrible scene would come on and we're like not going to R-rated movies. These are just like normal movies. And I'd always have to look away because it's just this awkward thing. And you didn't really see that happen with men. Men were always the ones out fighting and hacking up the dragons or whatever, but with the women, and look, I mean, like, honestly, like, if you play video games as a guy, like, what happens if there's a girl in the video game? There's, like, this is not even in my notes, but I'm just thinking of this, like, you'll be literally, like, an army fighting dragons and all this stuff, and the men are dressed, like, literally head to toe in armor. What are the women dressed in? Like, basically metal bikinis. That is what our culture says. Like, the women are there to look good. It is there for men and their pleasure. And sadly, another issue that girls are having to face is the open objectification of women by figures in the culture. Like, I think lately we've been seeing a huge amount of objectification from people high up. Just for example, not to get political, but, I mean, our president. Um, now, I'm not a political person. I really don't care either way. And, uh, uh, but I'm just going to read some things he actually said. So uh, when he was talking about the Miss USA pageant, they said, he was this Donald talking, how are you going to change the pageant? And he said, I'm going to make the bathing suits smaller and the heels bigger. Um, when he's talking about a female political rival, he said, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that face? Not like, hey, her policies are bad or, you know, she's a, you know, it's just like, hey, look at that face. And then talking about his daughter, he, this is when she's little. This is actually, I, I watched this interview. This is, uh, I think, Ivanka, or I'm not sure one of the other ones, but uh, maybe Tiffany. But he said, she's a beautiful baby, has her mother's legs, not sure if she'll have her mother's chest. Only time will tell on that one. So that's just where his brain is. He's already just viewing even his daughter as someone objectified. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to make a political statement as I told you last, or I've talked to you guys about this stuff before, I don't really support politics or really care about politics, but I'm trying to point out to a real issue. I know several girls who used to be Christians who walked away, and one of the reasons they were angry was about how during the election last year, so many men in their life, older men, grandparents, uncles, fathers, basically when this guy would say these things, they would, the, the men in these girls' lives would be like, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's just locker room talk. It's, it's not that big of a deal. And I even, I know basically many men who have said things that have downplayed, um, I, what I'm trying to say, sorry, I get all flustered with this stuff, but um, you know, when that tape came out where he was talking about grabbing women, men were saying, it's just locker room talk, it's no big deal, all men are this way. And I know many women, including my wife, who were hurt by this. Because just because many men act a certain way doesn't mean it's how King Jesus would have them act. And it's sad sometimes when we sacrifice our, the women in our life on the altar of politics. And it doesn't just happen with this guy. It happens on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, all over the place. I'm sure those of you guys who have parents who are involved with that kind of stuff have seen. So moving on, um, objectification is a huge issue, and it's not going away. And so we need to look at what Scripture shows us. And what Scripture shows us is the problem behind the problem. You see, when sin entered creation, God's original intention for humans was completely corrupted. Um, there's a concept in the Bible called shalom. Shalom is not just peace, it's like this idea of things being the way that God meant them to be. And the original state of humans, right? Adam and Eve, the first humans, the original state was image bearers of God. And how people viewed one another was family, brother, sister, respected, honored, valued. Valuable to God equals valuable to me. And in this world, no one was objectified because everyone knew exactly who they were. Everyone knew, Adam and Eve knew they were loved, cherished, and valued by God. That was their identity. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve loved one another the way that God loved them. But then the enemy, Satan, enters the picture. And Satan says, forget God's design. Why don't you define God why don't you define good and evil on your own terms? And as a result, we turn from image bearers to all of a sudden, instead of becoming image bearers of God, we become image defilers, which means that we attempt to turn human beings into commodities for our own benefit and pleasure at their expense. So this is how people view one another in a world of sin. People view one another as competition, 
objects and enemies. People think, I like what I see, so I take what I want. And this is why we have sweatshops, pornography, and reality TV. We try to take humans and turn them into products. Um, In the Bible, we see the story of Exodus, and there's this culture of Pharaoh in the Bible. Pharaoh is like one of the first evil empires in the Bible, right? He is this big figure that enslaves people in Egypt. And that represents what a kingless kingdom looks like because an empire is a place where power is gained by crushing others. And all enemies stand, or all, all empires, all the empires in the world stand in contrast in opposition to the kingdom of God. Pharaoh's evil empire was the largest scale empire in the world at the time. The world had never seen an empire as big as Pharaoh's. It was this kingdom dominated by sin, and it was man trying to play God. And Pharaoh rejects the, he- the Hebrews. He rejects that they're made in the image of God, and he rejects the idea that they deserve honor and respect. So he tries to turn them into products. He's like, you're going to be my slaves, and you're going to work for me. He uses them to get what he wants, which is wealth, power, and status. He's not thinking, how can I nourish and love these humans? No, he's thinking, how can I squeeze as much as I can get out of these slaves, out of these humans, and get what I want? Um, I love what Jefferson Bethke says. He says, the minute you are leapfrogging over someone or using them as a stepping stone, you know objectification is happening. And so you see, the big problem is, the problem is not just objectification of women by men, but it's wicked humans using one another as commodities and objects to get what they want. Because the reality is, it's not just men that objectify women, it's women also that objectify men, women that objectify other women, men that objectify other men, adults that objectify children, which is a sad thing that happens in our culture, but the reality is, the problem behind the problem is sin causes us to look at other people and say, how can I use them for my own benefit? And understanding this problem helps us understand and solve the problem that comes after it, which is one of the big things I want to talk about tonight, objectification of women. So the culture of Pharaoh produces slavery. The culture of Pharaoh is like, how can we pull someone uh, into our clutches and do with them what we want? So then how do we pull someone out of that? How do we pull someone out of that culture of Pharaoh, objectification, slavery, using others to get what you want, and pull people into the beauty that is the way of our God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ? Pharaoh's culture says, work, 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 more bricks, more straw, more hay, give me what I want, you know, and I think some of you girls might, like, resonate with that, because that's what the enemy says to you. The enemy says, look this way, act this way, dress this way, show some skin, but not too much skin, don't be fat, but don't be too skinny, be pretty, but not too sexy, don't be a doormat, but also don't be, like, overwhelming. That's what our culture says. It's this constant expectation. I think it's important to remember that culture without God is empty, right? The magazines, the YouTube videos, the movies, like all of the stuff on social media, the Kardashians, all of that culture without God is empty culture. When we allow culture to command how we live our lives, we'll be crushed by impossible standards that will always lead us to sin. Um, I had a video, but I'm going to skip it and come back to it. Do you remember when Adam and Eve first sinned? Do you? Anybody? Yeah, you like weren't there, right? (laughs) Uh, When Adam and Eve first sinned, how did they repent? Anybody? How did Adam and Eve repent when they first sinned? Yeah, they hid. They didn't repent. They hid, and then they played the blame game. They were like, it's Adam's fault. No, it's Eve's fault. No, it's the snake's fault. And the snake's like, I don't talk. I'm the snake. Oops. Um, (laughs) So... Um, they, they blame one another. That's what they did. They blame one another. No one took responsibility. And so when it comes to the objectification of women, I mean, literally, go on the internet and look at any YouTube video that talks about the objectification of women. If you scroll through the YouTube comments on the video, you will see the darkness of human hearts because no one is going to accept responsibility. Everyone is just going to be blaming one another and saying, oh, well, it's actually the girl's fault or it's this person's fault or it's that fault. We always find ourselves avoiding responsibility and playing the blame game. People love to put blame on the objectification of women. We have some who say it's the woman's fault. It's always the woman's fault. If she didn't want, this is horrible. This is horrible. But this is what people say in our culture. And I'm just being very blunt tonight. And also I'm leaving so I can basically say whatever I want. Um, But in our culture, we have people who say things. And maybe some of you guys have heard this before if you've had a friend or, or God forbid this has happened to you. But there's been people in the culture who've said, if she didn't want to be raped, she shouldn't have dressed that way. And that is horrible, and that is so wrong that people would say those things. 
Now, we come from a Christian context, and so that means that politically, we come, most of us, from a conservative background. The sad thing, and that's not all bad, like, you know, like, there's a lot of great conservatives out there, but the problem that I've seen in the conservative political movement is a lot of times conservative politicians make statements <coughs> like that, blaming rape victims, basically saying it's their fault for dressing the way that they did. And the problem is that rhetoric, okay, that rhetoric contributes to the culture of rape. I've heard young men who have been influenced by politicians and media say these things. The reality is, biblically, as men, all of us, myself included, we need to renew our minds. Faulty logic and unbiblical thinking that we pick up from childhood influences in media can contribute to the objectification and harm of women made in God's image. If men say, if she didn't want to get assaulted, she shouldn't have dressed that way, or you know, she had it coming to her, she was acting like a prostitute, or she was drinking around men, here's where that is horrible logic. So our logic is sex that is something that can be stolen. Therefore, if someone dresses in a sexual way, they deserve to have it stolen. So, okay, let's think. Can money be stolen? Yeah. So is our logic that if a guy dresses in a wealthy way, he deserves to have his money stolen? No, no one would ever say that. They, they did this study where they took things that rape victims commonly hear after the rape and replaced the scenario with men who've had their wallets stolen. And it's, it's a crazy reflection on our culture. Here's one thing. It was through a series of tweets. So this girl tweeted, I think that guy I know stole my wallet. And then the response is, well, do you have proof? Were you drinking that night? What were you wearing when that guy stole your wallet? Or here's another one. Um, so, but he seems like such a nice guy. Plus, he already has a wallet. Why would he need your wallet? That's like questioning girls who come forward about their assaults, which happens all the time. It's very hard as a girl if you've been abused to come forward because you will pretty much constantly be questioned by the people around you. Um, it's very easy for people to doubt women who say this has happened to them. For many people, the first instinct is to doubt a woman. Another thing that was tweeted was, are you sure that you didn't just give him your wallet and now you're embarrassed about it? Maybe there was just some miscommunication. Or uh, all guys want wallets. It's just in their nature. Maybe you shouldn't have had a wallet in the first place. Basically, boys will be boys. It's not their fault. It's your fault. We would say that is ridiculous. And that's not fair. Here's another one. Have you lost your wallet before? Just curious, trying to get a better sense of what's going on here. He has such a bright future. See, this relates to stories that have happened recently of college football players who raped girls and then had a judge and a coach in their town work together and basically say, well, we don't want to ruin this guy's career. He's a star athlete. Like, we don't want to send him in jail, so let's just give him a lighter sentence. This kind of thing happens all the time. Blame it on the girl. Well, she was flirting with him. She was being promiscuous. Find a way to give them a lighter punishment. Why? Because in the minds of these men, a young woman is not worth the cost of justice if it inconveniences men. And this is what I pray, honestly, that more and more young believers, men and women, will work together to battle injustices like this. Because really, being a Christian means that we fight injustice. It means that we work together for the good of the kingdom of God, which is ultimately that people get saved, but that doesn't mean that we stand by and let people get abused in any context. Whether it's babies getting aborted, we stand up for that, but also for women being mistreated. We should never blame objectification completely on women because it's not fair and it's not right. So here's the next question. So if it's not the women, is it the men? Are the men's only the ones responsible for sexual Purity. There's another side to this debate. Um, when I taught this at Bible college, I actually had one girl who was kind of just like, she was sitting there when I was teaching this and she got off luster and she was like, you're making it sound like it's all the men's fault. Like we girls are responsible too. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Here we go. And that was actually the next slide. Um, but I wanted to start with the men because I'm a man. And I think it's really important as a guy to start there and not be, because I think, yeah, anyway, moving on. So uh, the other side of the debate, here's what people say. It's all the men. They're all just a bunch of lusting perverts. There's a new wave of feminism that says a girl should be able to wear whatever the heck she wants and not be objectified unless she wants to be. Um, there's that whole thing in social media right now, the whole like free the nipple movement. Basically, yeah, I mean, I said it. It's like, there's nothing. We all have them. Anyway, so 
You know, but there's, there's nothing sexual about it. And yet the women who post pictures on social media pose in seductive ways on these social media campaigns. And it's because culture teaches them to do this. And, and we think it's all on men. Women should be allowed to be as sexual as they want and men just shouldn't look at it. Um, there was one girl I remember who posted, it was a girl that I knew and she posted this like very, like just, post that was very like politically charged and very angry and it was just this um, post to her friend just making this face at the camera and like grabbing her chest and sticking out her tongue at the camera and this is the caption that she posted on the post and I cleaned up the language but she said it's really freaking important to understand that believing you should cover up the skin that you live in instills self-hatred, insecurity, justification of objectification. Women should not have to cover up their bodies. Women are not inherently deserving of assault because of the skin they are born in. That's good stuff right there. Um, but then she goes on. Your body says nothing about what you deserve or what anyone else is allowed to say or do to you. My entire life, I was taught that having a body of a female meant that I didn't co- if I didn't cover up, I deserve what I got. And then she goes on and says, but guess what? Grab your privates, do whatever you want with your skin, embrace your sexuality, be whatever you are, and never let anyone tell you to stop questioning this misogynistic hellhole of a society. Someone else's messed up beliefs do not say anything about who you are or what you deserve. And I read that post and I was just like, I was so wrestling with it because I was like, there's a lot of truth to what she said, but then there was a lot of fault. This is the truth. Women shouldn't have to cover up because in reality, God made us naked. Um, So without sin, there would be no need to cover anything. However, humans and sin do exist. She says this, she says, women are not inherently deserving of assault because of the skin that they are born in. Yes and amen, I say to that, that is some truth in that post. Then she says, your body says nothing about what you deserve or what anyone else is allowed to say or do to you. Amen again, that's good. Then she talks about how her entire life she was taught that having a body of a female meant that if I didn't cover up, I deserved what I got, which is tragic. Um, I didn't teach that to her, but I know for a fact many girls are taught this and that is not the way of Jesus. Uh, but then when she loses it, she says, grab yourself and, and, and flaunt your sexuality. Do whatever you want. Be whoever you want. It's, and that's the song that singers have been singing for ages. Miley Cyrus, right? It's my party. I can do what I want. Love who I want. Kiss who I want. Uh, my wife and I were surprised just to see so many girls in our youth group at the time, this was years ago, like that post and even comment at high five hands and support. These are Christ following girls who love Jesus. Here's the problem. If you have a glass of poison and put a little bit of truth in it, it's still poison. And I don't think feminism is a bad thing if it's defined as the fight to see people or, or the fight for people to see women as equally valued by God and made in his image. Yahweh fights for that. Jesus fights for that. And we see in society this new wave of feminism that thinks the answer to objectification is flaunting sexuality, topless protests, things like that. That's the mentality. And here's the problem. That's not a real solution. If anything, it's a defeatist solution. It's women saying, because I am a woman, I know that this misogynistic society will objectify me no matter what I do. Therefore, I will objectify myself on my own terms. Do you, know, do you see what I'm saying, girls? I'm saying this because I love you. That's what the culture says. The culture says, because people, because men are already going to objectify you, then you decide when you get to be objectified. You decide when you get to be sexual. You put yourself out there on your own terms. If people are already going to objectify you anyway, then you choose when that happens. I will objectify myself before a man can. It will be my choice and I will enjoy it. I get to choose when I'm objectified. Here's the problem. God never intended for humans to objectify one another. It doesn't matter whose choice it is. It's still wrong, right? There's so much pressure on girls to post pictures on social media that are revealing. Like literally everyone is doing it. And you scroll through the feed and you see people posting these pictures in these swimsuits or in this way and, and, and copying the Kardashians. And there's this pressure where if you don't do it, you won't measure up and you won't fit in. But you know what? It doesn't matter the reason for doing it. It still doesn't make it right. The answer to sexual brokenness is not sexual liberation. And this makes sense in anything. If my leg is broken, is the answer to swing it around and put more pressure on it? No. Brokenness needs a healer. The answer to sexual brokenness is submitting to God's design and intention for sexuality. Um, You guys have all heard the story about the sex fire pit. You've got a fire pit, 
and there's fire in it, and if it gets outside of the fire pit, it burns down the forest. We want the fire in the fire pit. In the same way, sex needs to be in the context that God put it. It's an awesome, amazing thing, just like fire in the fireplace is awesome and amazing, but outside it burns down the house and the forest. Like it says in the scripture, can humans hold fire in their hands and not get burned? Now, this next illustration is a weird one because I call it the sexual sandwich. And hopefully, at the end of the night, that's not the only thing you remember. Like, oh yeah, like, mom, what did, or, yeah, what did Aaron teach you, son, daughter, about sexual sandwiches? Well, good thing he's moving to Oklahoma. Um, okay, so here's the reality. Don't use something that God made in a way it was not intended. So let's take sexuality. Actually, let's take sandwiches first. Okay, so sandwiches. What are they made for? What's the intention of the sandwich? Yes, that someone would eat it and enjoy the sandwich, okay? So let's say there is a group that looks at the sandwich and says, oh man, we're gonna abuse this sandwich. We're gonna stick it on the floor and squish it with our feet and just stomp on it, okay? These are like the misogynistic men in the example. They're just like, we're just gonna trample this sandwich, right? Yeah, because we're men. That's what we do. Boys will be boys. Smash the sandwich. And then, on the other side, there's another group, so let's say the feminists, who respond and say, that's not what sandwiches are for. You can't do that. We will show you what sandwiches are for. And then they dip the sandwich in paint and they try to paint a house with it. Is either one, is either way the way that you're supposed to use the sandwich? No, neither are doing the right thing. And in our culture, neither groups are doing the right thing. Misogynistic men who say, we're men and we should be able to do, be men and do whatever we want and just women should just shut up and just listen and be obedient to us. That's not right. But then on the other side, feminists who say, we're women and we can do whatever we want and say whatever we want and dress whatever we want and it doesn't matter if we stumble anybody. Neither one of these ways are right. What does the world say sex is for? The world says sex is for pleasure, specifically for you, the individual. And if the other person enjoys it, then hey, good for them. But if they don't, I mean, who cares? Like, you just take care of yourself. Like, look at pornography. Like, the other person isn't enjoying that, but you are. Who cares? It's all about you. And then you get married, and you think it's all about you. And then you get divorced, and, and because you thought it was all about you. And it just the cycle on and on and on goes. I want to just pause for a minute and, and show you a video by John Mark Comer. He's got a really good view on just what is sex. So you've been hearing from me, we'll take a break, you can hear from John, and we'll get back into it. So I find that there's a ton of talk right now in the world with my friends, with my family, my neighborhood about sex and about what sex is. And I also find, at least as a follower of Jesus, that there's a chasmic gap between culture at large's definition of sexuality and God's definition. By that I mean from the scriptures um, as Jesus would define it, as the biblical authors would define it. So basically, as I read it, culture at large defines sex as recreational play between two consenting adults. So it's just physical, it's just the biological coupling of two bodies for sexual release. And what's the big deal? As long as it's between two consenting adults, if it's mutually pleasurable, I mean, what in the world is the big deal? It's just play for grown-ups. And then the church often comes along and says, okay, here's all the rules. Here's where you can do it, and here's where you can't do it. But they buy into culture's definition of what sex is. And then basically say, well, you can do it, but only in marriage. And oh, by the way, only marriage between a man and a woman, not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. And to most of us, that's just nonsensical. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you hear that. You think, what, what kind of crazy, uneducated, traditional, outdated thing is that? It makes no sense. But reality, we have to get behind it to the definition of what sex is. So as I read the scriptures, as I read the teachings of Jesus, here's how I understand sex. In Genesis chapter 2, the word ekhad is used, that in sexuality, two people become ekhad, or it can be translated one flesh. This is a graphic, weighty word that basically means, when it's put together with this word flesh, fused together at the deepest level. That in sex, a man and a woman come together and are fused together at the deepest level. It is the bonding of two people into one entity, body and soul, physical and spiritual, because there's no way to bifurcate the two. So it's actually a much higher view of sex 
than cultures. Culture basically says, hey, it's just play. It's just biological. What's the big deal? God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, it's way more than that. It's two people who become one entity and then over and over again enjoy and express love for one another through sexuality. Now, inside of marriage, this is beautiful because it, it takes two people and it doesn't let them drift apart. It keeps them together. It keeps them echad or one. But outside of marriage, this can be dehumanizing because it can turn people into objects for basically self-gratification. And then every time you walk away from a sexual partner, it's as if you tear echad, as if part of you is lost. And you do that enough times and it starts to hollow you out from the inside. So I, as a follower of Jesus, think that we need a higher view of sex than culture at large, just not a lower view. We need to get back to the mysterious, beautiful, powerful reality of what happens when a man and a woman make love. So yeah, I thought that was a good explanation. And to balance it, I'll say this too. There's a great video by uh, a sermon by a guy named Matt Chandler. So one of the things that he was talking about was the tearing away. So, you know, maybe you're here tonight and maybe you have done sexual things. Maybe you've been with people in sexual ways. And, you know, maybe I don't know that or Brooklyn doesn't know that. Maybe it's a secret that only you have. And you know what? You're human and you make mistakes. And um, there, there is a truth to when we are in sin in that way we lose some of ourself. And, but <clears throat> I think it's easy then to think that we're lost and we can't be found. And um, I love that sermon by Matt Chandler because he's talking about like this idea of a rose. And um, there was this illustration where you know, he would listen in messages to like this idea of a rose and it's wilting. And it's like pe- this preacher is basically saying like, oh, the more you have sex, like you're like this rose and you're losing your petals. And then like at the end of it, it's like, oh, you have no petals left. Like who the heck would even want that rose? And um, Matt Chandler like then gets like really passionate. He starts shouting and he's like, Jesus wants the rose. Like it doesn't matter how damaged you are. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up. Jesus wants you and he loves you because he wants to redeem you. And so no matter how damaged your sexuality is, no matter how much you've messed up, whether you've slept around, whether you've looked at pornography, whether you've messed around with people in different ways, you need to understand that God loves you and he just wants to heal you. He just wants to come and fix what's broken. But it's important for us to acknowledge the brokenness. Our culture wants to bury the brokenness and say it doesn't exist, it's not a big deal, there's nothing wrong with it. We need to recognize that sin is sin and it hurts us and it's against the heart of God. When we sin sexually, we dishonor the image of God. So here's the question. How can we go against this? Whether you're a guy or whether you're a girl, we all need to look in our hearts and ask, what kind of culture are we creating with how we're living, how we're seeing, how we're acting, and how we're speaking? So we all help shape the culture around us. You shape your culture through your conversations. When I was a kid, there were certain things I didn't know. Like, I was pretty sheltered, I'll admit. Um, But there was times where I'd be with a group of friends, and they'd be talking about something dirty, and I didn't know what that was. And through their jokes and through their comments, I would then learn about that thing, and I would go home and Google it and be like, what is this thing, as a a young kid? And maybe some of you guys have been down that same road being exposed to things. And why did you first hear about those things? Well, it was because the culture around you was shaped by conversations. We shape the culture around us through our conversations, through our social media posts, and even how we like. Yes, seriously. Like one of your friends noticed that you like something, of course they're gonna check it out. What is that? I wanna know why my friend liked that. And sometimes we can carelessly like something and suck someone else into a dark hole. Everything that we say and do impacts everyone else around us. And so guys, we need to partner together on this. Men and women need to partner together. Here's what I'll say. Anytime a young man, a young man looks at a woman and sees an object, he is working together with the enemy in the spirit and culture of Pharaoh. That spirit that says we objectify each other and we enslave each other. However, anytime a woman decides to dress or act in a way to lure men to herself or draw sexual attention to her body, she is also working together with the enemy and contributing to the culture of Pharaoh. But now, let's just flip it around. Because you know what? It works exactly the other way. 
Anytime a woman looks at a man and sees an object, she is working together with the enemy and spirit of the culture of Pharaoh. And anytime a man decides to dress or act in a way to lure women to himself or draw sexual attention to uh, her, <laughs> I meant his, <laughs> her, <laughs> his body, he is working with the enemy and contributing to that same culture. So when a woman objectifies a man or a man objectifies himself by the way he dresses, acts, flirts or speaks. Yeah, seriously, like guys can objectify themselves. I've seen it a hundred times. Guys can objectify themselves by the way they act, dress, speak, even flirt. It's not about it being men's fault or women's fault. It's about the reality that we are humans and we're made by God for relationship with him and one another. So we need to work together on this. This problem in culture is not a woman problem. It's not a man problem. It's an us problem. We need to, as men and women, recognize this is not a man's battle or a woman's battle. It is our battle. We need to love one another through this battle. We need to constantly be asking the question, as men and women in our culture, am I making myself out to be an object or an image bearer of Yahweh, my God? When you're at the mall, when you're at school, when you're at the beach, when you're in social media, in those late night DMs, are you making yourself out to be an object? Are you making someone else out to be an object in that situation? Or are you presenting yourself as I am a follower of Jesus and I view you, whether you're a guy or a girl that I'm talking to, hanging out with, spending time with, do I view you as a precious human being made in the image of God who is not meant to be objectified, but is meant to be loved? People love to brand themselves based on looks, money, clothes, cars, possessions, sexiness. I remember when I was the junior high pastor, I got so frustrated because like the junior high girls would be on Instagram leaving comments on one another's posts where it's like, oh, you're so sexy. You're so sexy. And it's like, why are you using that word? Like, do you know what that word means? That word actually means that you are someone that someone else would want to have sex with. That is basically the idea behind the word sexy. You are a sexual thing right now. And I know like you're probably thinking, Aaron, you're overreacting, but I'm just trying to show you how deep that the culture has woven into our minds this idea that sex is no big deal. When we display ourselves to the world through these ways, we're making ourselves out to be a product. We are working with that wicked culture. So let's compare the culture of Yahweh and Pharaoh. The culture of Pharaoh is objectification of humans for my gain. I enslave humans, right? I turn people into slaves for me. Um, it's the same thing that happens when pornography is viewed. It's the same thing that happens when we sleep with somebody just because it feels good and then move on and forget them after that. Or even beyond sleeping with somebody. Even if like you're just somebody who dates somebody just for the pleasure that comes with that and then moves on and you never really cared about them in the first place. It was just a fun thing for the summer. That is objectification. The culture of Yahweh, our God, leads to freedom. Because Yahweh doesn't want to take value from others, he wants to give value to others. His answer to objectification is relationship, it's love. He wants to humanize us. Um, right in the Bible, when Yahweh pulls the Israelites out of Egypt, he gives them a new way to live. It's covenant relationship. It basically is saying, I am here for you, I love you, and I'm making a covenant with you. What is the covenant promise? It promises relationship with God forever through the promise of Jesus to come. It's a whole new way to live. It's basically a whole new way to be human because this life hinges on the reality that God loves me and I find my value through him. And if we believe this new way to be human, we resist the old way of life that tells me that my value is in my flesh. It's in the way people view me. It's in my appearance, my looks, my status, my sexuality. That's what the culture teaches. That's not what God teaches. The reality is humans without Yahweh are not truly being human. Human beings without God are not truly being human. God is not an option to humanity. God is the purpose that we were designed. It's like Josh White says, um, a, a Christian without the Holy Spirit, a human without the Holy Spirit, a human without God is like a lamp without oil. It's like a car without gas. It might look like a car, but it won't function as a car. When God pulled them out of Egypt, God said to them, I am your God. You will have no other gods before me. Is that selfish? No, because he realizes that our tendency as humans is to give ourselves to false gods, idols, which are just like deified personifications of our own desires. It's not actually life-giving. It's not actually God. We're not truly being human. Basically, 
if without God, we're like birds of broken wings. We're not flying. We're not doing what we were made to do. By pointing us back to our purpose, it's like he's found like, like wounded birds with broken wings and he's doing all he can to nurse us back to health so we can remember how to fly and how to be human again. It's the enemy versus God. The culture of Pharaoh says it's, it's what you produce for others that defines you. The culture of God says, no, it's the fact that I made you and love you that defines you. Pharaoh says, if you're not useful to me, I throw you away. Baby boys in the river, right? Modern day, it's the thousands of girls who are drafted into the pornography industry. This is a huge statistic um, that we need to realize because I realize that in today's, in today's society, it's not just uh, boys that are being addicted to pornography at a young age, it's girls too. Um, the, the young men and young women who are these performers in pornography, a huge percentage of them were actually kidnapped from their homes. Um, a lot of them were forced into the pornography industry. They were threatened. Um, the people who were filming them and managing them are basically threatening to kill them. And, and, and many people end up dying in this industry. And so it's just this horrible thing. Like it's not just like a, an easy, fun, relaxing way to just enjoy your time and just express your sexuality. It is literally bondage. It is slavery. Not just the people watching, but the people on the screens. Yahweh, our God, says the most important people are the least. The widows, the orphans, the homeless, the vulnerable, and the lowly. We get stuck analyzing behaviors when Jesus looks at the heart. We need to ask ourselves heart questions. Not just hard questions, but heart questions. What culture am I serving by the way that I talk, act, and dress, and use social media? Because like I said, this, this pornography culture, like it is bleeding into social media. We are seeing like just normal people looking at pornography, looking at Kardashians, look at, like not to throw them under the bus, but they're like, they're like the main people right now. But this, this culture that says like we should express ourselves sexually because we're humans and that's what we should do. But what it's doing it is buying into the culture of the enemy that bond, it puts people in bondage and enslaves them. So at this point, we need to wrestle with the idea of modesty. Um, now, many of you girls probably have felt like this dog at one time because someone made you feel the need to cover up and you were not very happy about it. <laughs> he's, he's, he's bummed. Um, here's the issue with objectification that we don't wrestle with enough. It doesn't just happen when the advertisement shows the picture of the girl in the bikini selling a burger. It could happen even in our religious modesty culture. Is modesty a good thing? Yes. What is modesty defined as? Modesty is it's, it's, it's living your life in a way where you're trying not to stumble others. And so related to dress, it's dressing in a way where you are not allowing yourself to stumble. So is modesty a good thing? Yes. However, modesty culture can be the flip side of the coin when it comes to objectification. Here's the other side. It's saying to a girl, hey, you are a walking temptation machine. And unless you live up to our exact standards, you are not right with the Lord. It's saying to a girl, all girls cause guys to stumble by merely existing. You must dress in an extremely specific way that won't make the guys stumble. I used to work at a Christian school. And girls with any holes in their pants had to wear duct tape. Um, they would, it was this big shame thing where literally like, they would duct I didn't do this. The, the, the administration did. But they would duct tape over the girls, their pants, and they would walk through the school, and it was like this, this mark of shame, like, oh, you brought the holy pants, um, but like, not actually holy, unholy. Um, Jefferson Bethke was talking about how at the Christian school he went to, there was a girl whose skirt was too short, or yeah, short, uh, and the girl had to drop to her knees in front of everyone and have the teacher bust out a ruler and measure her skirt. This is the objectification in a different way. Do you see how this is actually objectifying a girl in a much different way? It's saying, again, you're this walking temptation machine and you have to live up to our exact standards. We're saying to the girl, you are the problem and so you need to be changed. So the girl is not seen as a human being, but an object of temptation for the boys. And so the issue of her heart is not often addressed. Instead, the focus is only on behavior modification. Do you think that makes a girl want to follow Jesus more? Getting called to the principal's office and not having someone address the heart and say, we love you, and because we love you, like, and because we love the boys, like, we just want to explain, like, this is how we do things at our school. But instead, like, 
duct taping and rule, measuring people with a ruler, like, is, is that going to actually change anyone's heart? Or is that just going to make the girl say, I hate my Christian school and I can't wait to get out of this judgmental hellhole so I can be who I really am? When I uh, literally at my Christian school, like all of the girls in my class, like right when they graduated, the thing was, I'm going to go get a tattoo. And that was just their way of like just expressing rebellion. I have no problem with tattoos. Tattoos are great. Scott's got a bunch. Um, who, who cares? Uh, I think it's awesome. I would get them if I thought I could pull it off. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, it was this just idea of expressing rebellion. It was just like, man, I want to do something to really make my teachers and parents angry. This really is a problem of girls feeling conditioned to feel that objectification is their fault. I remember one time uh, I was doing a junior high camp, and one of the counselors, a college girl, ran up to me in tears because there was a junior high boy, sixth grade boy, um, down at the lake who grabbed her in an inappropriate way when she was down by the lake. And she was just crying, and she was just coming up to me, and she was just sobbing, and she was like, is this my fault? Did I do this? Is it because of my bathing suit? And her bathing suit was totally appropriate. There was nothing wrong with it. And I remember telling her, it's not your fault. Your suit is fine. And even if it wasn't, it was still his choice. He still had a choice to do that. Oftentimes, in, in these school situations, it's only the problem, uh, it's only the girls that are the target as the problem. It's not the boys that are lusting after them. And I remember when I led the junior high Bible class at Calvary, there was many times where I'd say this very same thing to the boys. I'd say, I don't care what she's wearing or not wearing, it doesn't give you the right to stare, lust, or fantasize behind, or, 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 uh, towards her. And that's the idea behind pornography. <laughs> the sinful logic of porn viewing is I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not forcing anyone. It's less harmful than me actually having sex. They chose to get behind the camera. I'm just honoring their choice and benefiting from it, which is false. Like I said earlier, I watched this eye-opening documentary that a church produced. It was uh, Mark Driscoll's church uh, about what really goes on in the porn industry. There's th thousands of free porn sites online and countless numbers of girls and guys who are on these sites and, and so many of these young people were abused by their fathers or relatives, were blackmailed into the industry, addicted to drugs, and are using it as a way to earn money for their addictions. Many were kidnapped as teenagers and young girls and boys and forced into the industry as slaves. This is a huge problem for both guys and girls. It's the new drug of our time, and we need to be fighting it. If you struggle with this issue, hearing these statistics should shock you and horrify you. It's not just like consenting adults expressing their sexual freedom for your benefit. It's an entire industry built on bondage. And this bondage is even seen in how girls as young as junior high feel they need to compete with the porn stars and magazine cover models and post seductive photos on their feeds because they are insecure and feel if they don't keep up with the sexualization and trends of culture that no boy will pay attention to them. And that is so tragic because uh, people are so beautiful and made in the image of God and they have so much to offer with their life and love and personality and friendship. We are so much more than our bodies. So much more. And here's the reality. The reality we need to remember is that we are beautifully made by God. Our bodies are beautiful and wonderfully made. They're not dirty, they're not gross, they're not evil and wicked. In the beginning, people were naked and unashamed. Sin took away that right, and now we have to adapt to that reality. I'm almost done. Sorry, I know this is a long one. Um, here's the thing. If men and women do not love and respect one another... They will cause each other to stumble. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. This goes for the person dressing and the person looking. Treat everyone greater than yourself. Here's the reality, okay? If I'm dieting, do I want people to eat chocolate cake around me all the time? Right? No. It, it makes life so much more difficult. A good friend is someone who knows that and respects that and is willing to sacrifice their freedom to eat cake when they're not around me. <laughs> In the same way, guys and girls are sexual beings, but God has called them to basically sexual dieting before marriage. And that's hard for everybody because we're built as sexual beings. And, and, and so to be surrounded as a young person and basically be told, you can't do this until you're married, it is very difficult. So if you're sexually dieting, wouldn't you say a good friend is one who knows that you're awaiting until marriage and is willing to dress, talk, and act in a way that is sensitive to not causing you to crave sexuality? Doesn't that just make sense? I'm not just talking to the girls here. Guys can absolutely dress and act and talk and flirt in a way that stumbles a girl in this way and causes her to go down a path of lust. Doesn't it just make sense 
to think instead of how can I flirt and dress to get this person to notice me and to sexualize myself so that this person comes after me? Like, why don't instead we say, man, I wanna love my brothers and sisters in the Lord and not do anything to stumble them. And for those of you guys who are dating uh, or who may be dating soon, this is definitely something to think about in a relationship because the natural thing you're gonna wanna do in a relationship is just go for what feels good and to satisfy yourself in your relationship in that way. But God has called you to sexual dieting even in the relationship and it is so hard. It is so difficult to get through that time period. But I would encourage you, to not just think of yourself, but think about that person in the relationship and think, man, this is a person who's trying to walk with Jesus. It's a person who's trying to love Jesus and follow Jesus. And by me tempting them in this way, by not caring, by not loving them, I am actually causing them to stumble. It's not about legalism, it's about love for one another. Stop asking what can I get away with and start asking what is kind. Start asking what is kind. If a girl posts a picture of herself barely covered, is that kind to the men in her life? No. If a man posts a picture of himself barely covered, is that kind to the women in his life? No, and I've seen that happen before too. Is it kind to the husbands or wives who have to watch their spouses look at the picture and struggle with wondering if it's causing them to lust or or wonder, am I as pretty as her or as handsome as him in their eyes? Is it kind to the moms who see their sons or daughters struggling or or to the other girls trying to follow the way of Jesus and now feel they have to compete or no men will show them any attention? Or maybe the guys who are just struggling with like, man, like I'm not as flirty as this guy. I'm not as outgoing as that guy. That guy's constantly just posting sexual stuff on his feed. That guy's constantly flirting with girls. Is that kind? Is it kind to the guys and girls who battle with lust and porn constantly? Or or, it's it's not kind. When we live in legalism, our motives are never loving. It's just, okay, what's the limit? What's the line? How how short is the skirt supposed to be? How long can my neckline be? Are these board shorts too tight? Am I being too flirty? It's all about meeting people's standards and then grumbling because we feel like we can't be ourselves. But when we ask what is loving, what is kind, it causes us to die to ourselves and live to others. It's not about obsessing over fashion choice. It's about listening to the Holy Spirit and just simply asking the question is, is what I'm doing kind to others? Does it consider their struggles, their battle, and their relationship with Jesus? So I am I'm going to skip some of this and just end on here, okay? Don't pretend you're strong when you're actually weak. A lot of us, at not just your age, but at my age and everyone else's age, we struggle with this. We're humans. We're built as sexual beings. We live in a culture that is just flooded with sexuality that is programming us on a daily basis to objectify. And here's the reality that I realize. You guys get to hear me like an hour a week, maybe two if you come on Sundays, or maybe two if you come tonight and I teach really long. But um, you guys hear me for an hour, but the culture, you guys hear like 24-7. Like we are on our phones 24-7. The TV is on 24-7. We are around our friends at public school, if you go there, just constantly. The culture, like if you, if you have like 10% of your time influence coming from the Lord and 90% of your time coming from the culture, it is going to be a hard battle. And so I get it. I don't judge anyone here who's sinned in any way that we've been talking tonight. I don't judge you because I know that you're human just like me and you've made mistakes just like I've made mistakes. But the reality is we need to fight against this together. And so if you struggle, like don't pretend you're strong when you actually are weak. We all are weak. Like, go to someone and ask for help. Be like, hey, I'm a dude, and I struggle with this. Or, hey, I'm a girl, and I struggle with this, and I need help. I need someone to pray for me. We are all in this together. I want to end on Jesus. The sexual ethic of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus actually did have a sexual ethic in light of the cross. See, Jesus never took from anyone. He never exploited anyone. He was all about self-sacrificial love. He didn't come to use us. He came to love us. And on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' like kingdom manifesto, it wasn't just a Bible study. It was Jesus as a king laying out to his followers, like, this is how we live in my kingdom. And this is what Jesus said. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Right, there it is. But then he sets his teaching next to it, and he says, listen, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, if you even look at her, if you even look at her in a way that is lustful, if you even look at him in a way that is lustful, and you've sinned. You see, being a part of the kingdom is not about modifying behavior. Jesus said, as you look at someone in a lustful way, you've basically slept with them in your heart. 
So what Jesus always addresses is the root issue of our heart. Because the root is something that grows deep down and causes us to degrade our humanity and others. It's the heart. Jesus says, by lusting, you've committed adultery in the heart against your future husband or wife and against God himself. And in this issue of the heart, Jesus views the world shaped by scripture. And I love what Jesus says because basically what Jesus is saying when he talks about the kingdom is he says, like he's talking to the men and women, specifically to the men in this instance, but he's talking to like the men in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, men, listen, the world Yeah, the world says don't commit adultery. But I say to you in my kingdom, if you're one of my followers, my disciples, a man after God's own heart, you live in a kingdom where under this kingdom rule, we make the choice to not look at women in a way where we turn them into objects. We make a choice in this kingdom that we treat women with love and respect and we love them unconditionally. Yeah. So it's so simple. It's the heart. So that's a lot. Let's pray. And then maybe some counselors can answer some questions.